today. Uh, I'm Matt Saltzman, chapter president, and uh, together with Professor Samahan, we um, are happy to bring you this series of debates and discussions on the state judiciary. Um, I want to also thank Lynn Warren, who has been uh, very important in getting everything set up for these uh, functions, and she's done a great job. Um, just by way of background, for some of you who may not be as familiar with the Federalist Society as others, uh, the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies is a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers who are interested in the current state of the legal order. It's founded on the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that courts should say what the law is rather than what it should be. The society uh, has chapters all over the United States. Uh, Las Vegas was standing out as one of the bigger cities in the country that did not have an active lawyers division chapter. Uh, we'll be bringing further events and future events of this nature on different topics to the community. And uh, feel free to go to the uh, website for the Federalist Society and uh, keep up with what's going on with the organization generally. It's a great organization to be part of, and uh, there was actually an article in the New York Times a week or so ago having to do with the, uh, the Gonzalez business at the Attorney General's office where they said that uh, the Federalist Society served as a talent pool for young conservatives seeking appointments in Republican administrations. And there was an allusion to a checklist where people who were going to replace the fired Attorney Generals uh, were checked off whether or not they were members of the Federal Society. So at least anecdotally, it seems to be an important organization to be involved with for certain purposes. <laughs> this afternoon's discussion is uh, being moderated by Professor Juan Samhan from UNLV. And as I mentioned, uh, he's been really instrumental in organizing these panels. And uh, I think uh, it's been a great benefit to this group and to the community. Um, just by way of background, Professor Samahan is an associate professor at the Boyd School of Law and has been a faculty member there since 2004. He's a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center where he was an Olin Law and Economics fellow and won the Olin Prize in Law and Economics for Best Paper. Um, we have at least one other Olin fellow, I think, in our audience that I'm familiar with. It's a great honor. Um, after law school, he worked as an associate at Covington and Rome, uh, clerk for uh, Judge Raymond Jackson of the District of Virginia, and then clerk for Jay Bybee in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, at UNLV, Juan teaches federal court civil procedure. The next year, we'll be teaching constitutional law. So it's good to have a federal society member teaching constitutional law at any law school. <laughs> His scholarship has been published in the Stanford Law Review and the Ohio State Law Journal. Uh, probably most Importantly, and what I think is one of the nicest compliments any professor can get is, is, is the students at the law school have voted him Professor of the Year uh, just recently. So um, we are happy to start with Professor Sagan. We'll introduce the speakers today and we'll start the proceedings. Thanks, Matthew. I don't know if we want to. Claim too much credit uh, that uh, membership in the Federal Society will help you displace uh, well qualified U.S. attorneys. <laughs> Speaking of corruption, uh, today's topic is about uh, the Nevada judiciary. Uh, almost a year ago, there was a series of articles that ran in the Los Angeles Times entitled Juice versus Justice. 
This series of articles highlighted some difficulties in the Nevada judiciary, uh, many of which appeared to arise out of our practice of electing judges. This third lecture uh, in a series of three for lunch and debate uh, is going to highlight uh, another question. In addition to structural reforms, is it possible that our problems run deeper and implicate issues of Nevada's legal culture? One of the judges mentioned uh, in the series of articles was a federal judge who enjoys tenure during good behavior, no longer needs to campaign. And this raises questions about whether uh, the problem uh, may be with us even if we do go to a point of system. Um, so we've decided to convene this panel to talk about other responses to judicial corruption that may either be as uh, supplements uh, or substitute to structural changes. Uh, I have invited three uh, guests, and uh, the notable fourth guest, who is absent, I should mention, is a representative from the Justice Department's Public Integrity Section. These are the federal prosecutors that are the paratroopers against corruption. They have committed in principle to attend, but then uh, after some recent developments, they decided that propriety said that they should not attend. That votes ominously for some of our judges here in Nevada. Uh, let me introduce first William Rempel. Bill Rempel has worked for years as an investigative reporter, most recently as an investigations and special projects editor for the Los Angeles Times. He's appeared on national media as a commentator for ABC, NBC, CNN, CNBC, and National Public Radio, among others. Some of the highlights of his investigative projects include the Iran-Contra scandal, Marcos's looting of the Philippines, Bill Clinton's Arkansas conflicts of interest and draft controversies, Triplegate, the Democratic Party fundraising scandal, to which I asked which one, pre-9-11 uh, uh, and post-9-11 terrorism reports, and of course, a June 2006 series of articles investigating influence in the Nevada judiciary entitled Juice versus Justice. He appears today courtesy of the LA Times, and I appreciate his willingness to return to Las Vegas to face the bricks, the bats, the stones, and the sticks. He is a graduate of Pepperdine College. To my right, or most of the time to my left, is my colleague Jeffrey Stemble, who is the uh, Doris Theodore uh, B. Lee Professor of Law at the William S. Boyd School of Law, where he teaches legal ethics, professional responsibility, civil procedure, insurance, and contracts. He's the author or co-author of several books and articles, uh, including most relevantly for us today, an article on judicial elections and another on judicial recusal and reform. A member of the bar in both Minnesota and Nevada, he serves on the Nevada uh, State Bar's Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility and Bar's Ethics Committee. Prior to joining UNLV Law Faculty in 99, he taught at Florida State University College of Law at the Brooklyn College of, or, excuse me, the Brooklyn Law School, and he's been a practicing attorney and judicial law clerk. He's a graduate of the Yale Law School. And finally, uh, last but not least, Sai Krishna Prakash is the Herzog Research Professor of Law at the University of San Diego School of Law, where he teaches constitutional and administrative law. He's previously taught at Northwestern, Boston University, and the University of Illinois Law Schools. 
His scholarship is in law professors, and it includes some of the most interesting and important contributions to the separation of powers literature, including, most recently and relevantly for discussion, How to Remove a Federal Judge, uh, published last year in the Yale Law Journal. He uh, was a law clerk for the Honorable Justice Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court and the Honorable Lawrence Silverman of the D.C. Circuit. He practiced law as a tax associate in New York at the firm of Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett prior to joining the Legal Academy. He, too, is a graduate of Yale Law School. Before uh, turning the time over to my panelists to speak to us, um, I'd like to pose a, a few questions to them that they'll hopefully answer during the course of their remarks. We'll have opportunity for questions from the audience later on. Uh, Bill, I, I'd like you to maybe talk to us about the role the press can play in shining light in dark cracks and crevices uh, on the theory that uh, transparency in the sunlight is the best antiseptic. And I'm also curious about how you got the idea uh, to research the Nevada judiciary. Uh, it's uh, often the case that our observations are theory-laden, and I wondered what led you to Nevada. Uh, what obstacles does the press meet in discharging uh, its obligation as the 40th state? Uh, to Professor Stumble, during a prior luncheon, a discussion suggested that mandatory uh, recusal uh, rules may help our uh, cause here in Nevada. And I wondered uh, if you would uh, not mind talking about some modest uh, campaign contribution limits, whether these might also be an effective check against corruption. And uh, finally, uh, Sai, uh, you've advanced a very novel reading of the good behavior clause and the impeachment clause. At least one of our judges who finds himself uh, under investigation at this time is a federal judge. And under the Constitution, we have the clumsy and onerous 100-ton dumb of impeachment. Uh, we are told, though, in your article that that may not be the only way a federal judge may be removed that there may be another means. And so I would love to hear you elaborate it. And to the extent that you feel willing, if you want to talk about Nevada's state impeachment procedure uh, for judges, I'd love to hear about that also. So uh, if you don't want to hear me talk, let me turn this over. Um, I will have a few remarks because uh, the Justice Department decided not to come on criminal prosecution. Uh, but first, let's hear from our panelists. Bill? <coughs> Well, uh, we say first that uh, I thank you for the invitation. We're, one of the uh, uh, results of our story that's been most uh, uh, satisfying to, uh, to journalists is the, is the response that uh, my, my previous investigative projects, including a lot of the clinical material, and uh, usually there's an outpouring of venom, heat and other uh, darts and, and uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and this one has been the opposite. It's been almost uh, or a little off balance sometimes because of the enthusiasm for the for the project from the, from the uh, local press and the uh, and the uh, for that matter, all the lawyers and, ju and judges who have, have have responded to us have, has been universally um, uh, thankful, grateful for the um, work we get. The uh, uh, I've also found a lot of fans in, uh, in the public who uh, believe that they have been wrongfully uh, treated by the judiciary. A lot of them 
I got that actually back in my office a stack of unopened letters from someplace that one neighborhood where we get a lot of them from Indian Indian Springs. <laughs> they're literally this high, and all of them have the same same complaint. They're uh, they're a victim of uh, of uh, unjust justice. Um, but the uh, to want to ask the, the most important question at first is uh, how is the um, is, is the Looking at, at the dark, lighting up the dark, the dark corners. There's not, there's no uh, uh, use of power, or use of power that could operate in a in in the daylight for very long. And uh, one of the things that that, I, that we discovered when we came here was a system that was built to to take advantage of that that, uh, that, that the shadows. You asked how we how we came here. It was a it was a fairly prosaic way. Uh, we had a, a new editor who uh, flew over Las Vegas, looked down on it, and said, look, we got to do some stories about that place. Look how big it's getting to be. And, and he was intrigued. He was a, a New Yorker. And I just had, we had a, a sense that he needed more about Las Vegas. And we, we hired, I went to a, a, a colleague who was a longtime LA Times reporter, but retired, who grew up here. So. We wanted to look at Las Vegas from the standpoint of somebody who wasn't naive uh, in, in walking in. And Mike, Mike Goodman, who's my partner on the project, was the first one in. He, he came in and he, he had a discovery fairly quickly. He uh, went to the courthouse and found your uh, Blackstone system at the, uh, at the computerized version of your, of your court records and discovered, wow, you could do some really interesting things here. You could. You could, uh, for instance, take all these judges, uh, run run the records back when they were lawyers, see what cases they handled, and see who their clients were. And you reverse that, run the clients through the through the records, and see what cases they brought. And he discovered right away that some of the uh, judges were sitting on cases involving their former clients. It was a fairly routine thing. Uh, so then he ran the records of uh, campaign contributions, and of course some of them were bigger than others, and ran the big ones and found. Well, they routinely are uh, being there between lawyers appearing before them and in some cases uh, clients who are giving uh, contributions. There's a, a conflicts of interest everywhere. Now, we were conflict of interest, as I've said before, is, uh, is spelled the same here as it is in Los Angeles. And, and even though it's a small town with with a, with a small uh, uh, relatively to California anyway, a small bar. It's uh, these conflicts of interest are, are the, the stuff of, of distrust, and with just one quick look through the record without going deep, there was uh, sufficient smoke and to uh, to attract a, a project, and that's how it started. If we find that kind of conflict in a in a brief overview, um, committed committed two reporters and actually for a time three or four. A research assistant, a set of editors, uh, photographers, and a, a team that uh, that for a period spanning about five years, though not full five years, uh, um, but but spanning this five-year period, we were we were, we were here um, probably a couple of years. Uh, two of us here for two years, uh, digging digging deep into those records, and. Uh, uh, Microfilm, I tell you, I, I got to know the microfilm of this. Uh, we went through record 50,000 cases during that 20 years, and uh, paper, microfilm, and 
occasionally something kind of unusual. There's one case where a, a former assistant attorney general uh, had had the records that showed a particular judge had been giving preferential treatment to uh, one of his former clerks who now was representing DUI cases. Every DUI case that came in from that former clerk was treated with the special care of uh, getting, getting whatever he asked for, getting delayed, getting the punishment uh, reduced. His lawyer, uh, his former uh, uh, US, or, uh, AG assistant uh, had the records, but, he, but they were stuffed in a vault in his, in his garage, and he just never had time to get them. So one day I, uh, I showed up with a U-Haul truck because he needed to move a bunch of his files into his office, and I helped him move his files into the office, and that got him to the file drawer that had that document, the set of documents, and that's how we ended up finally getting that. That's one that wasn't quite in the, in the public record. I mean, there are public documents, but they had been kept because they had, in, a, in a private place. And we'd be, we'll do anything for a, for a document. <laughs> Kind of back on that, and we'll also do anything to get to get to talk to people who will uh, will actually know something. I this the story went on for some time. I'd say we, we uh, not only was it was it a, uh, a a long period through two years. We 9/11 broke in the middle of Shamir uh, when we started, so we had to stop and do a little little terrorism coverage. Uh, even the, the whole the whole staff was doing that. So we when we re reconnoitered again back here in Las Vegas, we we still had a couple of years' work to do. Um, but we also, it was very expensive. That's just one of the obstacles. We asked about one of the obstacles in the media doing these kinds of things. It's money is a, is a huge one. Um, the expense of doing this project would, would break most uh, smaller papers. Uh, we had two reporters working two years ago. Uh, out of town on, on expense accounts. Um, this is not just in Las Vegas, but it required travel to other parts of the country. And I, I, uh, I was in Florida, Washington. And I don't think I'm, I'm divulging too much to suggest that our our budget at the end of the of the uh, project would have been probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which the RJ probably would be able to spend easily. But most papers can't. <clears throat> but that's one of the reasons why it's difficult for some projects to be taken on by by the by the media. Uh, the other is people don't like to talk about judges and. Um, I must say, knocking on the door of a lawyer and asking him critical questions about judges uh, made a lot of them pale. Um, and, and on the record, they were they would be one story, and off the record, there might be another. For our purposes, there's nothing in our story. If you read it again, there'll be not one not one line of un, unattributed uh, comment. It's all based on documents and records. <clears throat> and we have been led to those in some cases by sources who. Uh, we're willing to take a chance to trust us that we wouldn't make them public enemy number one to this judge or that judge. But uh, uh, most of them would not relish taking on a judge um, or being appearing to be. Um, one thing I'll say before I uh, the questions and stuff later um, is that one of the things we discovered in this town is that is that the, that there was a that the perception of the perception of a conflict of interest, which was real to us as outsiders looking for the first time and going, wow, how can we put up with this, is so common here, uh, in part because it's a small community. Um, and so the rational rationalization has been, been worked right into the, into the woodwork of the town. But um, 
that perception is very real, and people who are victims of it uh, uh, don't don't uh, don't make make allowances for the fact that this is Las Vegas. Um, most of the most of the people who are in this court system, a lot of the folks in this court system, are from California, which is a, one of the reasons too why we felt that it was sort of in our backyard to come here. Um, but that perception uh, of of conflict is something that this state takes great pains to avoid when it comes to the casinos. And uh, you've got a, a gaming commission that's only purpose is to make sure that people who come here to gamble um, believe that they are treated fairly. Not that they win, but that they're treated fairly in the process of their losing. Uh, so, but on the, on the judicial side, you, you don't have a system where any where, where that where it seems like, at least to these Californians, is that you're not as concerned about protecting the perception of fairness in the judiciary as you are protecting the perception of fairness in your gaming world. So in that in that arena, we felt we had we could have been here for another couple of years. There, there are more stories than we could write, and. Uh, um, maybe we'll come back sometime. This is a start. I won't hold before that long. Um, thanks, Bill. Um, I guess my uh, director, yeah, I keep going back for things, so I follow my assignment, uh, is to talk about the recusal angle uh, of things. And, um, and I don't want to seg into what is one of my favorite topics, uh, complaining about the elected judiciary. But, but I can't help it in this case because my operating thesis is that uh, we, the current recusal or disqualification rules uh, simply only offer us limited ammunition in trying to improve uh, the quality of justice. Now, the focus, of course, of this program is corruption, um, and I don't want to stray from that too much, but I think we, one doesn't have to be horribly conspiratorial to see a problem, even if you don't see outright corruption. I think a lot of what uh, I think is a greater problem is sort of the hydraulic pressure of subconscious favoritism or even fear of crossing people that may not actually be the out-and-out horse trading or uh, bestowing favors on friends that uh, was uh, discussed in the uh, LA Times article. But but let's just look at at least what most lawyers would think. And, and I, I know we've got lawyers and non-lawyers in the room. Can I just get a showing in the hands of the, the non-lawyers? Okay, oh, pretty good. And so I won't try to, um, and, and you know, this is a sophisticated group that one doesn't have to be technical with, but essentially we have the, can the code of uh, judicial conduct and the canons of judicial ethics uh, in this, that the ABA promulgated and it's been in existence in some form since the early 20th century, and it's adopted in pretty much verbatim form by all of the states. Federal court judges and their disqualification, disqualification are governed by a federal recusal statute that you can find at uh, Section 455 of the Title 28 of the U.S. Code. And it essentially says in one part, a judge should recuse or disqualify him or herself from a proceeding whenever their impartiality can be reasonably questioned. And there's a whole body of law that says it should be an objective standard. It shouldn't be the subjective um, paranoia of a particular litigant from Indian Springs or anywhere 
anywhere else, but what would a reasonable observer, being relatively well-informed, think viewing it from afar? That's 455A. And then 455B is a segment that says if the judge's family, and family would include up to the level of cousins, uh, or uh, former law partners or close social uh, acquaintances uh, have an economic interest in the case that the judge should recuse himself or herself. And the, um, the um, impartiality subject to question standards are subject to being weighed. Uh, you, you could sit down as a judge in the federal system, and this will work the same way in the state system under the Code of Judicial Conduct, and say, here's my issue, do you guys have a problem with it, and people can consent to it. The financial conflicts under the federal system cannot be waived. It's an old um, a legacy of Learned Hand, who used to apply what came to be called in New York the Velvet Blackjack. Learned Hand would have the litigants in front of him and go, you know, I own some shares of stock of your client's company, counsel. Does that bother anybody? And the lawyers, their knees would turn to jelly, and they'd say, oh, no, Judge Ann. <laughs> we think you're going to be fair. <laughs> so go right ahead and do it. And that was frowned upon. But the, uh, the impetus for that, uh, for the change, and it was quite a, um, a structural uh, toughening up of the federal disqualification standard in, that, in 1974, uh, Senator By, Birch By, not, not Evan By, was the uh, proponent of that. And some of that was a reaction to some questionable, non-recusal decisions that had been made at the Supreme Court level and otherwise. Um, and part of the legislative history of that statute, I've always read, is trying to get rid of the doctrine known as the duty to sit. The duty to sit being the concept that judges should not recuse themselves lightly because it leads to self-selection in cases like, oh my gosh, a tax case? I don't want that. Let me find a conflict. Or it leads to um, you know, judicial laziness or um, uh, basically being in the system and, and, and the idea that you should really, the judge should have to hear the case unless they're pretty clearly disqualified. Uh, and that doctrine has been enshrined in Nevada uh, at least since 1977, most expressly in a case called Ham versus District Court. Um, and it's also embodied in the ABA Code of uh, Judicial Conduct. Um, and it, uh, the Code of Conduct that we now have in Nevada is based on the 1990 ABA version. Uh, and then in February of this year, the ABA approved a new Code of Judicial Conduct. Guess what? The duty to sit is still pretty much in that Code of Conduct. And so to some extent, uh, there's a little bit of a cultural or attitudinal divergence, I think between the federal courts in which the language is very similar between Section 455 of the Federal Disqualification Statute and the impartiality and, and conflict standards under the Judicial Code, but the duty to sit notion is still much stronger in state court and is particularly strong uh, in Nevada. Um, so stepping back for a minute, if we didn't have that that overlay there or that sort of presumption or that culture, if we just asked ourselves, well, can the judge's impartiality be recently questioned as I go before him or her and um, my opponent, uh, or the, either my opponent, the party, or my opponent, the opposing lawyer, has contributed $3,000 to his or her campaign, gee, could an objectively reasonable person look at that situation and wonder about the judge's impartiality? I guess I'm going to submit at the risk of opening myself up to some criticism. I think there's only one really realistic answer to that question. Of course there's a reasonable question about the impartiality of anybody who in part owes their position to the people you are now facing off against 
in a civil or a dispute, or a criminal dispute for that matter, but I'm focusing more on the civil side. I think if we play the rules of the game according to the text of the statute and the notion that we want uh, an even-handed judiciary, and more importantly still, we want the perception of an even-handed judiciary, I just don't think there's any way you can justify not having the answer to one's uh, question. Almost, a, and it might be an automatic refusal. The, the current state of the law is that, and it says so even in the commentary to the very latest APA Judicial Code, and it says this in judicial opinions of this court, Supreme Court and of other states, and it says it in um, judicial ethics opinions by the Nevada Bar, that the mere receipt of a campaign contribution is not disqualifying. But to me, that runs extremely counter to the general notion that the impartiality of the tribunal is at issue uh, if they're getting money from one side and not the other. Or maybe they're getting more money from one side and not the other. Um, and I suppose one could argue for a parity of corruption or a parity of compromise by allowing judges to sit in cases where each side is given equal amounts to his or her campaign. But, but it just doesn't make sense to me. It's sort of like... Um, changing uh, the stream that suddenly takes a very big curve at the end uh, of the, the riverbed. Um, you start with the notion that we have this high church uh, attitude towards judicial neutrality and judicial impartiality, and then just all of a sudden the code says, never mind what we said in the black letter. In our commentary, we're going to tell you that we don't really care about political contributions. That's a little strong. The case law that's evolved on this, some of the commentary would say, if the campaign contribution is substantial, or if the parties before you have been heavily or significantly involved in the electioneering that brought the judge into his or her position of power, then that might be a basis for disqualification. But frankly, it's a slippery slope and a transaction cost we don't need. Gee, is it $1,000? Is it $5,000? What if the lawyer was simply a supporter who put up a line, long sign as opposed to if the lawyer was chair of your committee? Those are all distinctions that one can make, but they're distinctions that I think arguably are not worth making. And in that sense, I think the mandatory recusal for campaign contributions is, is something that has a lot to recommend, it, as does the notion of limitation, because if you can't, if you don't want to engage in the case-by-case -case analysis, or if uh, you don't want, if you want to at least help the problem along by reducing the maximum amount of um, money that can go to a judge from any one person, uh, you're going to at least reduce that. But of course, then we have that same can of worms that we have when these contribution limits are applied to legislative or executive offices. Well, what about bundling? You, know, you may limit the contributions to $1,000 a person, but if everybody at a large law firm like Lionel Sawyer or Jones Vargas puts a $1,000 check together and they get bundled and delivered, I think Judge X is going to know who his or her friends are uh, at the law firm in question. So uh, I think like chicken soup, some sort of limitations can't hurt, but we really don't crack the nut of the problem unless we take the view that judges really are not uh, in a position to call things down the middle uh, if they're getting contributions from one of the parties. That, I think, is a given. Where the law has been even more lackadaisical, in my view, is what about the lawyers contributing? The general ethos in uh, disqualification law, some of it borrowed from the federal system, is, well, there's a big difference between whether I feel indebted to a party or whether I feel indebted to their counsel, because the counsel's going to get a fee, maybe not, could be a contingency case, but generally, the counsel's going to get paid and whipped to fight another day, no matter what the court's rulings with regard to the parties in front. So there's a, there's a tendency in the case law built up over decades not to 
take uh, ties to the lawyer as seriously as ties to the actual parties upon whom a judgment will be rendered. But in the electoral system, that distinction is blurred, if not uh, obliterated. We know, as a practical matter, that the way judges in the elected system get office is to have the support of the organized mainstream bar, or at least substantial elements of it, both for purposes of word of mouth and support, and, um, and but certainly for campaign contributions as well. So in an elected system where the practicing bar plays such a large role, it to me is very hard to make much of a distinction between campaign financing from a lawyer and uh, campaign financing from a party or ties to a party and ties to a lawyer, all of which has, in my view, created a situation where our black letter of ethics seems to me to dictate that judges shouldn't be sitting on cases where there's been political support on one side or the other, monetary or, or in kind. But at the same time, we create this big exception. It's sort of like, and I hope I won't run a follow, I don't know which wing of the federalists I'll run a follow when I say this, it's sort of like the election of the U.S. Senators, two for every state, doesn't matter whether it's Wyoming, doesn't matter whether it's California. If we didn't have it specifically in the Constitution, I think we'd all agree it violated the Equal Protection Clause. But we do have it specifically in the Constitution. Why have we been, through the back door of commentary to the Judicial Code, taking away the front door black letter, highly, highly um, um, emphasized notion that we don't want judges whose neutrality or impartiality is subject to question sitting on cases? The only conclusion I can draw from this is that uh, in a sort of organic way, maybe virus-like even, the process of judicial elections has dumbed down or reduced our commitment to the ethical values that we purport to have regarding judicial impartiality. It's a natural consequence. Why? 39 states have some form of election. It becomes a little bit like the rule of necessity. Gee, if we have mandatory recusal, then uh, doesn't the whole system come screeching to a halt because judges are getting campaign contributions here, there, and everywhere from all sorts of lawyers. And many law firms, of course, give to both. I suspect there was a fair amount of that going on in the Becker Seda race last fall, but I didn't, I, I'm only speculating, but maybe someone who's actually looked at figures or knows something about where the money came from. It wouldn't surprise me if certain law firms were making sure they were represented in both camps of a highly contested judicial election. And although that may have a certain parity of sorts that prevents favoritism, it's still, to me, not an optimal solution. So what is a potential optimal solution, and is there a way of rehabilitating recusal law in a way that would actually improve the situation? And, and I think there are some possibilities. One would be the occasion of the new ABA Judicial Code. I'm not a particular fan of what was done. It was just basically a renumbering and rewording of the current code, although somehow they managed to go from five canons down to four. But the substance is largely the same, and some of the changes is maybe a little bit of an update and some in this room might even call it political correctness. We now have a specific thing that says judges shouldn't sexually harass people and we talk about domestic partners as well as spouses. But, you know, I had thought that we might get more out of the change than just sort of updating the language and tinkering. And we really, in this code, the ABA has not come to grips with the problem of campaign contributions and disqualifying um, judges, nor have they even acknowledged that Republican Party of Minnesota versus White was a 
ever decided by the Supreme Court. You'll recall that that's the case that says that the candidates for judicial office have First Amendment rights and can really talk about how they feel about legal issues. And there's really not much acknowledgement, really none, in the current code. There's still a whole lot of precatory language about judges shouldn't be commenting on this or that while they run. So it seems to me we've kind of got a worst of both worlds. We've got the problems of an elected judiciary, but at least if you played by the code rather than the Republican Party versus White, you'd have judges that were somewhat muzzled. We don't permit partisanship in partisanship in judicial elections, so you deprive voters of the cues of knowing whether a judge is more of a Republican or more of a Democrat, which is at least going to provide them some informational value that they can't get unless they're a religious reader of the judicial guide that their local newspaper puts out that may or may not be as thorough and nuanced and detailed as we'd like. Um, how do we make that system a little bit better? Well, first of all, we need a cultural shift. The duty to sit, in my view, is a dinosaur. It might have made some sense when some judge was riding circuit out on the prairie and this judge didn't sit on the case and went to another judge far away or languished on the docket for months, but we've got plenty of judges. Not as many as L.A., but we've got plenty of judges. And if there's a serious, reasonable concern about the judge's impartiality, uh, it would be better for them to pass on to a judge where such concerns did not exist, as opposed to taking the duty to sit perception, uh, and it's a strong one, that unless I am absolutely in the crosshairs of a disqualification, mini disqualification argument, I am going to continue to sit on the case. We really need to recalibrate it and shift the burden of uh, persuasion the other way uh, so that uh, when there's doubt, any kind of reasonable doubt, I don't mean paranoid Indian Springs delusional prison doubt, I mean any kind of reasonable doubt, then we ought to have recusals so that people can be assured of the fairness of the political system. And along with that, a different attitude for both our Supreme Court and the um, Judicial Ethics Committee would be helpful. Uh, Supreme Court not only has enshrined the hand decision, but when judges have tried to take what I would call the high road, our Supreme Court has sort of slapped them down. You might remember in a case, uh, if I can find my notes on it, uh, that was decided uh, not that long ago, 2000, in uh, the city of uh, the Las Vegas Downtown Redevelopment Agency case. Judge Denton took arguably too high a path. He said, well, this was all about the three-month street experience. I know a lot of the downtown casinos are interested in how that turns out. They contributed to my campaign. I'm not going to say it, even though I think I could be impartial. And the Supreme Court said, ah, not the standard. You know, you really don't have a direct conflict. You don't have disqualifying conflict. That goes to you, Judge Denton. And one can say that 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 conflict was a little attenuated. The casinos were not parties to the case. They were just interested in the outcome. But, it, but you know, what would have been the harm if that case had gone to someone who hadn't gotten money from the downtown casinos? I really don't see money, and our court is saying, oh, duty to sit. Here you go, Judge Devin. Don't try to get all wishy-washy with us on recusal or we're going to slap you down. And then most recently, just uh, late this year, in a case called Millen versus District Court, uh, the, the uh, Supreme Court commented about recusal lists, which some judges have, where they give the clerk lists and say, if the uh, case is coming down the pike and it's got these parties or lawyers, don't give it to me because I have ties of my prejudice. And the court basically said, well, recusal lists are okay. And then the good thing, they said they can't be secret and they have to have some uh, rationale for them. You can't just put them on the recusal list. You have to give the rationale why they're on the recusal list, at least to the clerk, and the list itself has to be public so people know. And I understand the, the public spiritedness of that and the open government nature of that, but again, in the course of that opinion, the court reiterated its duty for the general rule and the presumption against disqualification, and I think they made it a little bit cumbersome. I think it ought to be 
open to a judge as long as it's not being abused, and we have ways of dealing with that on a case-by-case basis, for a judge to say, you know, put down these five attorneys on the recusal list. Why? Because I think they're horses asses. And if they appear in front of my courtroom, I'm going to have a hard time being fair with them. That's a little tough to put out in the public domain when you're doing your recusal statement, but it might result in fair adjudication, the same with parties or anything else. And what's the consequence of this if we if we get too sensitive on recusal? Gee, it goes to another judge who doesn't have the problem. I just don't see that as the, um, uh, the sort of uh, mischief that the courts traditionally have. Ah, and let me, in the minutes I have remaining, talk about the uh, Judicial Ethics Commission because it might interest you to know that our Judicial Ethics Commission has issued an opinion saying campaign contributions don't disqualify a judge. They even have one that says if the judge's spouse has been doing consulting for one of the parties, you don't have to recuse yourself, which is to me just floor-breaking. And I went through maybe the last, there may be eight or ten opinions that uh, are not as, um, in my view, obvious as that in terms of leaning one way or the other. But every time there's been a fork in the road, the Judicial Ethics Committee of the, of the Nevada Bar has taken the fork in favor of restrained recusal. They, you read the opinions, they hold together okay, they're not crazy, but they're all starting from that presumption, highly restrictive of recusal, when what we really, I think, need is an attitude that's more in favor of ensuring the fairness we need. Nevada isn't the railroad stop it was 60 years ago. Uh, we don't have the same issues with the small state phenomenon. It's time to really move toward more of a California model and more of a big picture view of what would actually uh, work in these particular matters. Um, uh, with that, the um, uh, now that said, and I guess I, I'll try to come to that conclusion, even though I don't have anything that passes for an organized, elegant one, is that there really is the opportunity to uh, at least get some hydraulic improvement if we change that basic attitude and take a different view of judicial disqualification and spend more time worrying about avoiding the possibility of partiality or bias or prejudice, and less time worrying about judges perhaps being too quick to disqualify themselves. It, it, we can make improvements, but as long as we still cleave to the duty to sit concept and presumption, and as long as we still cleave to the, gee, forget what we said about ethics when it's an electoral system, there's going to be a, only a limited role for disqualification law in fighting the sort of things that we found out about in the LA Times uh, series, and in fighting the sort of um, less um, dramatic but subconscious uh, bias that we can have in the bench. Well, I want to thank you all for uh, inviting me today, the Federal Society and Juan, and of course all of you for coming. It speaks well of Las Vegas that all of you have decided to come here and uh, have lunch with us and, and learn like I am about um, the Nevada judiciary. Um, I really want to recommend uh, Bill's article. Um, one of them is still on the Los Angeles Times website. The other two, I think you have to go to Westlaw or Lexus to find the three-part series published back in June, and it's very very interesting. The only problem I have with it is the title, Juice versus Justice. I just think we should be able to have both. You know, I, I like juice, <laughs> and why can't we be able to drink it? It should be fine. And then I should finally say that um, I've been told that these three gentlemen were on NPR this morning, the local NPR station. I've been told that it's also going to be replayed tonight, so um, I'm going to try to listen to it, because I, I can't get enough of it, and, and if you can't, uh, maybe you want to listen to it as well. 
Tuan asked me to speak about the federal constitution and a little bit about the state constitution. I'm going to try to do that very quickly. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with federal judges, federal officials that uh, have gone off the tracks? And there's two ways, three ways, uh, under the federal constitution. The first is impeachment. The House, um, the House impeaches an official by a majority vote. And then the Senate can convict the official by a two-thirds vote. And then the official can be removed from office and barred from future office. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. That's expressly in the Constitution, the impeachment mechanism. And most states have duplicated that in their Constitution. Of course, that process comes from England. The English had that process as well. Is it a very uh, useful process? It's useful in extreme situations, but it's not used that often because it involves a lot of resources. Members of Congress have other things to do besides um, hearing impeachment cases, and so uh, it's only done very rarely. Right? You have thousands of federal officials and very few of them get impeached. That could be a reflection of how good they are and how trustworthy and honest, uh, honest they are, but it also could be a reflection of the fact that it's, it's really impossible or it's, it's, it's very difficult to go through this process. And if, if you actually are going to face that process, what do you do? You just go ahead and resign rather than having to go through it, right? So like, uh, President Nixon did that because he didn't want to be the second president uh, to be impeached and perhaps the first to be removed. So there's the impeachment process, which is sort of a phantom menace in the federal constitution, not very, not used very often. You also can be prosecuted. You can be prosecuted by the DOJ while you're in office, and you can be put in jail while you're in office. And there, are, there have been situations where federal officials, remain federal officials, drew their salary, but were in jail. Uh, federal judges, in fact, has happened to, to some. And so that doesn't really take them out of office, but it does, you know, I, I guess it brings some psychic uh, pleasure to us when we see the people who have done something wrong, something happens to them, and eventually, I suppose, they'll either resign or the Senate will get around to convicting them. The thing that I talked about in the article that Tuan mentioned was the good behavior clause in the Constitution. Federal judges serve during good behavior, and that's a tenure in office, and it's a tenure in office that has implications that we've, uh, I argue, we've, we've forgotten over time. Good behavior tenure is a relic of the English tenure system where the Crown could give various sorts of tenures to, to individuals who serve the Crown. You could serve during the pleasure of the Crown, you could serve during good behavior, you could, you have, you could have a, a tenure that you could pass on to your, your progeny, so a, a job actually could stay within the same family indefinitely. Um, good behavior, you know, pleasure, sorry, tenure during pleasure was you know, the ability of the Crown to say, look, I don't want you in this awesome, you're, you're out of here. I'm going to fire you for any reason whatsoever. And that's the sort of pleasure that executive officers have vis-a-vis the president today. Good behavior tenure um, was a tenure which said, if you misbehave, I can kick you out. But if you don't misbehave, you can stay uh, until you die in this office. And so it gave the person a measure of certainty and a measure of comfort. But they wouldn't be kicked out because they made a decision that the king didn't like. And paradoxically, the executive officers were the ones most likely to get good behavior tenure, not judges. This was a passage of an act called the Act of Settlement in 1701, where judges were given uh, uh, good behavior tenure. And, of course, we adopted that in the federal constitution. This tenure actually has nothing to do, these provisions had nothing to do with impeachment. It was a tenure that could be given to anybody. Private parties could give each other tenure during the You could give it like a tenant on your land tenure during good behavior. You can give an employee tenure during good behavior, which would be something like we have in situations where you give someone uh, not an at-will contract, but you tell them you can only remove for cause. That's what a good behavior tenure was. 
And so in this article, my colleague and I, Steve Smith, write that under the federal constitution, good behavior tenure means that if you misbehave, you can be ousted from office, separate and apart from uh, impeachment. And that would cover situations like not attending to your duties, um, you know, not showing up to work, all sorts of others, other misbehaviors that might not be high crimes and misdemeanors. Because as you know, the standard for impeachment under the federal constitution is high crimes and misdemeanors. And we argue that there are other things that federal judges could do that could lead to their removal because they are misbehaviors. They have shown that they haven't behaved. And the reason why it's so controversial is that because most people assume that the only way to remove a federal judge is via, is via impeachment. And we argue no. What you need to have if you want to remove someone with good behavior tenure is to have a trial before another judge and the production of evidence that the person actually has misbehaved. And if they have, then it's perfectly permissible to have them removed. You'd have, you'd have to have a federal statute that said as much, right? You'd have to have, some, you'd have, to have a doctor to adopt some procedures that permit you to do that. But because the Constitution itself only gives them good behavior tenure, there's, not, there's no problem with removing them when they misbehave, so long as you give them a trial where they have a chance to defend themselves against the charge of misbehavior. And so, you know, I guess there's a federal judge here um, uh, where you might think that there might be some misbehavior there, and you would very well, I think, under our view, be able to remove him without having to go through this uh, difficult impeachment process. So this, I, I would argue there's sort of three different ways under, under the Constitution that you could deal with this problem. You have impeachment, you have this prosecution where they still remain in office, and you have this good behavior removal. And then there's also, you know, there's also a, a judicial, a judicial councils in each of the circuits, and they also can take actions against their colleagues. So each, each federal circuit court uh, sits in review of the actions of their colleagues, and they can also impose various disabilities on them. Uh, and one of them actually is a, is a, is a, is a quote, temporary bar on hearing cases. Um, but it's possible to have that temporary bar stay in place indefinitely. So, in fact, you could you know, sort of quasi-remove them that way as well. Um, so that's the federal constitution, and those are the, the three principal ways. The state constitution of that, and I'm just learning this because uh, uh, I'm not an expert on state state constitutional law. You have impeachment again, which is just basically mirrors the, the federal standard. You also have a separate removal provision which says you can, the assembly can remove, the assembly and the senate can remove uh, judges and officials uh, for whatever reason they want to by two-thirds votes of both chambers, which is actually a little higher standard than the impeachment standard because for impeachment you only need to have a majority vote in the assembly. So that's another way of removing someone independent of impeachment. You don't need to have uh, an impeachable offense for that. And then, of course, the Constitution also mentions a commission on judicial discipline as a means of removing officers. Uh, it doesn't flesh out what the standards are for removal, but it mentions that the commission can do that, and the commission is composed of various judges throughout the state. Then I'm assuming under the state Constitution, just like the federal Constitution, you can prosecute judges as well while they're in office and, uh, you know, put them in jail, etc. And so that would be a, a further way of preventing them from carrying out their functions as a judge um, without actually removing them from office. So there are a number of things that you can do. The, the difficulty is that uh, they're all fairly difficult to do. Um, and given, you know, given the, the problems that it seems as if Nevada's facing, it's not obvious that any of them um, are satisfactory. And that's why you know, Jeff's proposals perhaps are better, uh, better things to look at as a means of actually getting folks out of office who you think are problematic. And with that, I will end there. A lot of questions.
Right. I had a few brief comments about uh, criminal prosecution before turning it over for questions uh, to our panelists. There are several uh, complications or difficulties with the prosecution of judges. Uh, one of the practical problems is going to be detection, uh, as is the case with many white-collar uh, crimes. Uh, they tend to be more difficult to detect. And in, uh, in the legal system, where we have an adversary system, there is always going to be a disgruntled, unhappy party. So it can sometimes be difficult to separate the white noise from the real problems that may be out there. Uh, another practical problem that may be uh, stymieing uh, criminal prosecution is sort of the clubby sociology of the bench and the bar. Uh, th that is, uh, state prosecutors uh, have to worry about appearing before the judges, and if the judge uh, is a friend with another judge and you choose to, to, sh to shoot at the king, you better be sure that you don't miss, uh, is the old adage, if you're going to shoot at the king, don't miss. And, uh, and so uh, these are some practical difficulties. Beyond that, there, there's some, maybe some policy reasons, too, that we think that uh, criminal prosecution of judges uh, may not be the most desirable uh, way to go about policing the judiciary. Uh, first, we've got to worry about threats uh, to the independence of the judiciary. Now, when I talk about independence of the judiciary, I don't mean independence from the law. Uh, no one believes that the judges should be independent from the law. Uh, but by independence, we mean that they should act uh, without partiality towards parties. And to the extent that there may, say, hypothetically be a harassing investigation, you may be uh, perhaps instigated by attorneys who lost before the judges, uh, then we may worry about the possibility that this chills uh, a judge being bold and applying the law as she or he may uh, be required. Uh, an additional aspect uh, or concern that we may have with the criminal prosecution of, of state judges is when that prosecution occurs by federal judges, or excuse me, federal prosecutors. Uh, and so there is an additional concern about federalism. That is, uh, should the state uh, have priority to prosecute its own, or is it necessary for the national government to come in and to restructure uh, the state judiciary? Um, the Public Integrity Unit is uh, well adept at prosecuting corrupt public officials, uh, and there may be some very good reasons why they may be better suited. For example, the clubby sociology, uh, as I said, called it the clubby sociology that exists, uh, may not affect a one-off player rather than a repeat player that's never going to be in Nevada again. So a distant federal prosecutor may have a level of psychic and professional detachment that would allow him or her to really, uh, in all earnestness, uh, go after a, a state judge. Uh, one benefit that might accrue to us from criminal prosecution of state judges who have violated laws is uh, not only do you manage to remove one corrupt judge, but this may have a potent interorum effect. This is the flip side of chilling judicial independence, is that, is that maybe you're chilling the bad behavior. It may only take a small number of successful prosecutions to make an example uh, of those judges and to teach the others to watch out. Now, I'd like to present uh, a couple questions to my uh, colleague panelists and then open it up uh, 
When I do open it up, I'm going to set some ground rules, uh, given that we'll be talking about uh, judicial uh, corruption. This is uh, obviously a sensitive topic. Uh, please keep your comments short, and there should be a question in there somewhere. Uh, I'm going to limit you to one minute, and I will cut you off uh, if it is a speech rather than a question. And uh, I ask you to, to be mindful of all defamation laws that, that, that may uh, uh, apply. Uh, so uh, first, uh, I've got a question for Bill here. So lawyers regularly complain about the accuracy and precision of the press's coverage in legal affairs. Is that complaint just sour grapes from our profession, or would you admit there is any truth to it? And, and, and then as a corollary, do journalists need to have legal training like uh, the lovely and talented Janet Crocker Greenberg to be credible uh, reporters on legal affairs? Yeah, sure. Why you take it from Well, reporters make mistakes. Um, I kind of can see that, just as judges and lawyers do. And um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I, I can't, I can't uh, argue a, an infallibility. But 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 I don't think a reporter has to have legal training to understand the rules of fairness and and, and the uh, place of fact in a in, in a story. Um, there are obviously some some stories that involve legal philosophy and and, uh, and and policy that will be challenging to a reporter who has no experience with it. But um, but no, I don't I don't think we need to pass the bar to to tell you uh, what's important about your uh, about your legal system and to cover cases and and, uh, and trials. Otherwise, we're we're all in trouble. Because you're going to have a hard time getting lawyers to work for our, for our rates, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, the Nevada Constitution gives uh, the Supreme Court, uh, who, in addition to being justices of the court, are, are incumbents in elected office, uh, the ability to promulgate the Code of Judicial Conduct, which also happens to regulate the conduct of those who would like to challenge them. Uh, doesn't that itself present a conflict of interest that we ought to be concerned about? I have to think about this for a second, even, even though it was, it was foreshadowed. Uh, to a degree, although I don't know that it's that different, that, you know, I think it's close enough to the situation of, say, having judges uh, promulgate the basic rules of procedure and things like that, that uh, it's pretty attenuated to get um, the benefit of that. What I think the control on that should be, and Tuan and I have had these conversations about at least some of the, I think, more dicta than holding in some of the Nevada cases that says, well, the court isn't really bound by legislation, legislation on this if it involves regulation of the judiciary. I, I, and I don't know the Nevada Constitution as well as I probably should, but it seems to me letting the judges decide what's going to be in the code makes sense, but there ought to be the option for a legislative override. So let's just say, for example, that the Nevada Supreme Court adopts in total the current new ABA Judicial Code, which still basically allows for judges to sit in cases where one party may have given quite a bit of money to the campaign. Um, it would be an interesting constitutional dilemma, but if, as a responsible legislator, I, if I saw that, I would say, gee, maybe it's time for a change. Let's pass a law uh, requiring 
mandatory recusal, and then let's see how it goes. Now, of course, the irony in that ointment is, um, under the rule of necessity, who gets to hear this constitutional challenge to this piece of legislation? Probably the same Nevada Supreme Court that didn't see it that way when it, when it adopted wholesale the ABA judicial code. But in the uh, words of, uh, was it Mr. Dooley who said the uh, uh, Supreme Court reads the election returns? I, I think it's not an unreasonable group of people who would read the tea leaves correctly if there was sufficiently strong public sentiment to um, clean up the, and take you will take the money out of judicial politics. Luke Sy's got a question for you. So, Jeff, I don't know all these ethics rules, um, and I, I suppose I've said something about me, but they're, they're, members of Congress get money all the time, and they vote on legislation affecting their campaign contributors. So, I think, does this suggest that they ought to be recused from all these votes as well? And the second question, I'm sorry to ask you questions. The second question is, is it possible to give, I mean, if you follow your rule, wouldn't it be possible to give money strategically so that you could sort of block out all sorts of judges you didn't want to have hear your cases and then get the ones you wanted to by not giving them money to me? So, I'm just, I'm just wondering if you didn't gain some Two good questions. The first one, you know, would you support the same analysis applied to legislators? And I don't think it does. Now, my analysis, which I think is really better uh, articulated by Justice Ginsburg and Justice Stevens in their dissents in the Republican Party versus White case, not to say I really don't necessarily disagree with the White majority, but I thought in dissent, the four dissenters had very good points about why the judicial office is different than the legislative office. And I have a whole list of points that I won't bore people with, but I think one of the main ones is you're part of a body of the legislature and you have debate and you have bicameral legislators, legislation in most cases, except I guess Nebraska, you have the executive, you have the challenges to the court. That's quite different when, uh, for the most part, the judge is a one-person operation who has that much authority. So um, I, I think uh, you don't have to apply the same sort of zero-tolerance approach to campaign contributions and self-interest that you might with the legislature. Uh, as to the second point, I think uh, there is that danger of gaining the system or even getting the crummy public policy where the judges who get the most campaign contributions are the worst judges. And there's also a Nevada judicial ethics opinion that says if those same bad judges get hauled up on ethics charges, they can use their campaign contributions to defend them as long as the charges arise out of their judicial activities. I had a question for Sai also. So um, under your reading of the Good Behavior Clause, could a federal circuit court decide to remove this federal district court judge? So uh, I, I gather your answer was yes. But uh, does the circuit court need to have some sort of congressional authorization? You seem to suggest that in order to invoke the Good Behavior Clause. Um, or is this power just an inherent one? Could the Ninth Circuit decide that uh, should this judge uh, prove to misbehaved in office that uh, is tend to be revoked without needing an act of Congress. Yeah, I don't think it's inherent. I think that Congress has to pass a statute. I, the way I envision it is that the Constitution just says you can stay in office as long as you behave well, which uh, makes it possible to remove them if they misbehave, but no one has the authority but for, by virtue of the Constitution itself to make that determination, so you need to give some judge jurisdiction or some judge's jurisdiction over the matter that allow them to hear a case, right? So you, you have you'd have to have someone bring the case arguing that the person has misbehaved. You'd have to have a trial where the judge would be able to argue that he or she had misbehaved and you'd have an introduction of evidence and, and go to whether or not he misbehaved in, in office. So I don't think there's any 
power under the Constitution itself to do anything, you have to actually pass a statute that, that allows you to take advantage uh, of the tenure in office that they have. Right? Because once again, the tenure just says you can stay in office as long as you haven't misbehaved, and you've got to have, have a process now in place to actually judge that. I was just wondering if there was some way to legally justify what the U.S. Supreme Court did when they stripped uh, Justice William Douglas of his vote uh, due to his decrepitude in his age. He, he lingered longer than he probably should have as the longest-serving U.S. Supreme Court justice. They, uh, the other justices got together behind closed doors and decided in any case in which uh, Justice Douglas would cast the tie-breaking vote that they would ignore it. And uh, so I was wondering if there was some sense we could consider that as a sort of reading of the behavior clause. I mean, you know, while we might either praise or condemn that, that's not really a, the proper procedure, right? Because the, the person who has good behavior gender has to be given a chance to refute the charge. And here the charge would be you're no longer a mental, you know, sound mind function as a judge, and that would be a grounds for removal. If you didn't, if you couldn't perform the function, the question you shouldn't be able to continue in office. Uh, that that would be a form of focused behavior, even though it doesn't seem culpable in any way. But you have to give the guy a chance to say, "Oh, I am confident. You know, I can. I do stoke and crossword puzzles and or whatever. You know, whatever the argument would be. No, I'm not talking about John Paul Stevens. Or, you know, I mean, just sort of decide you're not going to count someone's vote. It's not giving them a chance to actually be heard. And what is clear is that you had to, to have a trial of some sort before you could be ousted from your office on the grounds you could misbehave. And that's the whole point, right? The, the judges, you know, the, the Crown used to just remove judges who, didn't, who the Crown didn't like. You, you ruled against us, we're going to take you out of office. And they said, we don't want that anymore. We want you to give them good behavior tenure. But that didn't mean that you were just going to be in office forever. It meant that if you misbehave, you could be removed. But you've got to have a trial to prove it, because otherwise it's just, you know, it's, it's arbitrary as to whether or not someone is misbehaving. Uh, so that's why they always like having a trial. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, now, so we're going to open this up to questions. It's now about 125. I'm planning going for the next 20 minutes. And so if you have a question, we've got a microphone set up here. Uh, if you wouldn't mind coming down and asking your questions there. And remember, there needs to be a question. Let's keep it short for uh, a minute. And uh, you can tell me who your question is directed to. My question is uh, directed to Sai. Uh, with regard to the good behavior standards, would you agree or disagree that the public record developed with regard to Judge Real in Los Angeles is sufficient to remove him with regard to the uh, good uh, behavior standard? Uh, unfortunately, I don't know the judge you're referring to, so it's hard for me to comment on whether they, the judge has misbehaved. So I, I, I don't even know who you're talking about. This, this is my behavior. I don't know other panelists know of him, but uh, they can probably talk better than I can. I, the, the problem is, you know, California is, you know, could be six he's states. A federal, he's a federal judge. The House is conducting proceedings uh, right now. Uh, and it's been a very quite 
quite public. I've lost track of it. Uh, where it is. Maybe uh, Jeff knows that. I, I don't know. I was just going to make a bad joke about Jensen Mayall's PR team has kept him from being tied in San Diego. Uh, <laughs> um, apparently, but, but, but I guess with, I, I do have a more serious question because uh, for the benefit of the audience, and I haven't gotten a chance to read Simon Steve's article yet, but um, is there any sort of quantum standard? What constitutes sufficient bad behavior, which I think does go to your question about, you know, could it be, you know, what, you blew the call on one recusal, or does it mean you have to actually be on the take in order to have a valid good behavior clause prosecution, um, you know, or, or are you content with sort of a common law development of that jurisprudence? Well, that's what it was in England. It was a common law, you know, judge-made law about what, what constitutes misbehavior. So there's, you know, there, I don't know any English case where someone who didn't recuse themselves was, was accused of misbehaving. I don't know if they were scrupulous about recusal back then or if you had to have rules. So, but I, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards if you, if you stick around and perhaps learn from you what I should have known before I came here. Yeah, I think this is probably best addressed by Professor Stemple. Couldn't we avoid uh, a lot of the problems you were discussing if we prohibited lawyers from making contributions ethically to judges before whom they regularly appear, and would that withstand First Amendment scrutiny? Um, you know, I, um, um, I haven't read my Buckley versus Vallejo and its progeny for a while, so I, I don't know that I'm competent to comment on the Constitution. I don't think it's a bad idea because um, even if there's nothing nefarious about it, what, under a system where so much of the drive is from the bar, it sort of creates a, you know, at best a benign pay-to-play sort of thing, right? When the, when the campaign committees come calling, every lawyer is sort of is expected to sort of pony up and everybody's getting the invitations in the mail and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I think that would be one way of, of certainly having, a, a, you know, dampening the effect dramatically. Now, the problem then is the nature of boards of action. So if the lawyers aren't contributing, the special interest, the special interest money take on a greater uh, clout than it would otherwise, or is there in fact sort of a, a wink and a nod that the law firms identify for their clients and the judges who they think should get the money? You know, we have all that host of practical problems. Uh, my first reaction is, although limits might be okay, bans would have some significant uh, constitutional problems, but come on, might be able to better answer that question. Uh, probably not today, but uh, I think you know uh, one thing to consider is the different nature of judicial office versus, say, legislative office. Uh, and we expect legislators to be partisan. They legislate generally, except in private bills, over categories of persons uh, in abstract ways. Judges, on the other hand, are called on to uh, rule in particular cases, and that may well affect. Uh, how compelling the state's interest may be um, in that analysis. Now, I, you know, that's just off the top of my head. I'll defer to the Supreme Court. And, 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 and not to, just to, to pile on for a minute, uh, you know, public financing of judicial campaigns is, is taken hold in some states. And I know uh, when we had a symposium a few years ago at UNLV that uh, Mike Bowers did a presentation on that. At least at that time, my recollection was that the, from the political science department at UNLV, that the um, um, that they seem to think that that was a, a partial solution, but then that calls into the question that we might all have in this room about whether we like public financing of those sorts of things, but that might be uh, a way of getting around it as well, or you might, you know, you could have you lawyers could find a blind, fund a blind fund where someone else decided who got the money, but again, it could be a blind trust for 2020 vision. Thanks. 
this question has to do with SJR2. I don't know how many people know about it, but if the uh, uh, multi plan uh, makes it through the assembly, uh, Tuesday morning, the judiciary, um, then one of the provisions that hasn't been mentioned in the papers very much leads me to this question. Uh, the uh, SJR2 would not only provide for this uh, modified Nevada plan for judicial selection, but it would also create a commission of judicial performance review. Now, that's interesting because the Article 6 Commission is working, we've started to work on how would you do judicial performance review. The Act stipulates how the uh, group would be put together. And the University of Denver also has published a paper which is on uh, our website, uh, the Center for Public Ethics website. You can find it there, maybe from them. I think it's called Shared Expectations, but it talks about how would you evaluate the performance of judges. And uh, that's worth looking at. But my, so my question is, how are we going to do this? In other words, it's going to be in our court, maybe, uh, to make responses as to how would we put together the criteria for performance evaluation in a regular way. Uh, maybe I'll ask Jeff. It sounds like you were. Well, um, you know, I think actually, I, I don't know that I have a, uh, a laundry list as such, but I think that is an opportunity. If, if um, and I'm not as familiar with the bills, I probably should be focused on the sort of Missouri plan aspects of it as opposed to the evaluation. But if you put together, you know, I'm actually find that, you know, sometimes blue ribbon commissions can be mere window dressing or politics in the guise of good government, partisanship in the guise of good government. But I think if done right, blue ribbon commission sorts of groups can probably come up with this list of, if you will, shared values or criteria that would be pretty good. And for me, one of those would be you want judges who, um, you know, have the right uh, calibration about recusal. You know, you, you don't want someone who is you know, jumping off of cases all the time uh, because that can create collateral uh, issues for the court. But you certainly don't want someone who's hanging on to cases tooth and nail because how dare somebody question my ability to rule fairly. You know, the, 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 the sort of imperial judge who's, who's uh, often wrong but never in doubt is a problem. And I think that that's, would be the focus on recusal. But then you'd have a pretty long list as well about best practices, um, and some of which we know, but to have them kind of codified would be helpful, you know, to, to be real careful about uh, how you use the judicial office, what sort of ex-party contacts you have, what sort of social contacts you have, what sort of economic uh, situation you're in, that sort of thing. I think those can all be worked out if you get a group that doesn't have um, a hidden agenda. So I, I'm much more concerned with the composition of that group, just as I'm much more concerned about the composition of a selection commission than I am so much of the criteria. I think, uh, you know, my experience with the bar in the state is is, uh, you know, if you get a, a, a good cross-section of competent lawyers together, they'll pretty well agree on um, you know, who would fall on me. This is an acceptable side of the line, you know, an acceptable judge, versus these are the kind of folks that we really don't want in the office. Um, I, I came across the SR2 and the Las Vegas Sun while doing some research on this, and I, I came across the fact that there's going to be this commission to make recommendations to the voters about whether to keep judges or not, and it's, it struck me as interesting, but having just heard this talk about it, it also struck me as unique. I don't know uh, I don't know other state governments uh, that well, but I'd be surprised if there are other state entities that are telling their voters how to vote. 
Um, and I don't. It's just it's sort of an odd situation, right? Because you know, why don't you do this for the governor and the, the legislators too? It suggests that the, the voters just don't know enough about the judges to make a decision on their own. That they need a recommendation from the government about whether to keep uh, the judges there. And that might be right, but then that begs the question of whether you should continue to have elections in the first place if you're going to give uh, the decision to people who need a recommendation from someone else. I actually, I don't know what I think about judicial elections, but it just seems kind of odd to have the government make a recommendation about whether to keep other government officials. To, to, to reply just a little bit, I, I believe that another jurisdiction has adopted these sort of public reports. And I, and I don't think it's a recommendation whether someone, uh, that is, it doesn't say vote yes, vote no. Uh, it's a report, a judicial performance report from another jurisdiction. I, I can't name that jurisdiction today. Uh, but it's amply clear uh, from the report, uh, I suspect, what the commission of experts think. Uh, and then it may be up to the voters to decide whether they want to give this weight or not. I, sh- I should say that it's not unprecedented. Bill, Pennsylvania and Vermont in the early you know, 1789, whatever, they had a council of censors which would actually sit and review of how the state officials dealt with their constitution every four years. And they were called the council of censors because they actually censored officials for violating the constitution. Nothing came of it in the sense that nothing happened if you were censored, but it was a way for, I guess, the public to get information about how their elected officials were doing with it, you know, from outside the government in a sense, right? They were part of the government, but they only met every four years. And their job was basically to be a watchdog. So maybe it's not impressive. Well, the, the watchdog rule, of course, is what we should be doing. Um, it, it is the, the way to put the spotlight on, on the conduct, on the, uh, on the way of doing business. And then that information has to get out. But once you've got the information, what do you do with it? And in, in, in this, in this, uh, your oper- in your uh, uh, system here, we did notice in our reporting that, that it's very difficult to to censure a judge. I mean, if you, uh, or even to investigate to see if there's some sort of even criminal conduct in some cases. We we, we show, for instance, a case of uh, one judge who converted his his uh, $10,000 in campaign money to a loan to a girlfriend. I mean, he called it a loan. She said it was a gift. Whatever he called it, it was, it was converted from campaign money into personal use. Um, does, what do you do with that? I mean, does anybody care? I mean, we reported it, but it's still now, once, once it's been reported down to the community, whether it's the community of lawyers, the community of judges, or the community of greater Las Vegas, has to have some mechanism to do something about it or some willingness to do something, or some desire to, that the press can't, can't provide. That's got to be coming from some other source. Thanks. Would you like to come up to the microphone so we're recording this? You tell us. You tell us. Good morning, or good afternoon. Uh, I have to preface my remarks by saying I'm the vice chair of the Nevada Standing Committee on Judicial Ethics and Election Practices. Uh, our chair, Gordon DePauli, may very well have been here, but he's in Reno and he's working today. And I have with me Dee Dee who's a member of the Nevada Commission on Judicial Ethics. 
hear the case under my sort of um, um, ivory tower view of recusal, uh, if I can kind of spin out that hypothetical. And I think the answer there would be, most people would give the answer, of course. I would still feel more comfortable, frankly, if that case were uh, taken to Washoe County, frankly. Right, so that we don't have that issue about, gee, was the judge looking over his shoulder at the RJ editorial board or the Sun editorial board when he granted summary judgment for the defendant in a defamation case? I would just feel better if somebody in Reno doesn't have to live and die potentially by a Las Vegas newspaper endorsement made that call. Brandon, and then I'm going to give a final question to Bill, our guest of honor. Noticeably missing from Nevada is intermediate appellate court. I was just wondering what the panel's thoughts were about the effectiveness of appellate review in sort of addressing this problem. And then what you thought about uh, the potential for that as a solution, given it may not have the same constitutional requirements as changing from an elected judiciary to a um, uh, Missouri plan under the Nevada Constitution. So uh, ab initio being, say, appointed rather than elected? Well, that, that would be for the reform, but it, it's just appellate review, the likelihood of appellate review, an effective a solution to some of these corruption issues, the, the thought that you're going to have another judge look at your decision for the um, bias or the taint that your bias might have on the facts or your decisions of law. Is that, has that been an effective check in the other states and, and even in the federal judiciary? Anyone want to take this? Uh, yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I also confess to being a fan of having an intermediate appellate court because I think that we've now gotten big enough that too much of the work is being shunted to the staff if we don't have one in terms of, and I think we would get more meaningful appellate review. And it might be a good opportunity to make that intermediate court an appointed court and see if we like or don't like the kind of judges we get on that versus the ones that are chosen in the election. We could have our own in-house experiment. That said, because of the rule of finality, normally you can't take an immediate appeal of the of a disqualification decision or non-decision. And so the appellate review is, I think, going to be limited. Uh, we still have petitions for mandamus and things like that, but that then becomes an extraordinary writ and so on. And, and as, as we all know, after the fact, cases settle or they get decided or, they can, or, or a decision not to disqualify can be regarded as harmless error. So although I think it would help, Again, it's my chicken soup theory of everything. These things can all help, but they really don't. Um, I don't. I wouldn't expect a dramatic uh, difference simply because we had a more searching appellate review. Guys, one thing. What I was struck by by Bill's article is that how many attorneys and clients didn't even know of the potential conflict of interest, and so if they don't know about it, they're not going to raise it, and then it's not going to be preserved for appeal. So. Um, that, that's a cultural problem. Uh, if, it's, if it's a problem, it's a cultural problem that the, the judges themselves have to sort of come forward and say this, and they're not because they don't think it's a problem. And so, you know, I, I assume the local bar perhaps knows of the conflicts and maybe they raise them, but the, the folks who are from out of state, uh, they're, they're just totally caught by surprise. I mean, how many times Bill would mention that people were just, he was telling them and they were outraged that they didn't know this during the trial. And I know I have one little story along that lines is we there's a, the case of the lead story anecdote in our in our project was a story about a judge who uh, was sitting on a case and a lawyer who was uh, whose case this was through a a big fundraiser in California for him and put the thirty thousand dollars in punch bowl on Sunday and on Wednesday he was before the judge and the other lawyer found out about it and said well. 
uh, we think you should recuse. Well, the judge, in this case, knew that the recusal request was going to be made. And when we looked in the, uh, when we looked into the records, we, we discovered that the, uh, that the demand for recusal was actually date stamped after the judge's response to the request for recusal. He knew it was coming, and he actually was so put out by it, so angry, that anyone would challenge his, his fairness that he actually filed a, 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 an answer to the recusal request that hadn't been filed. So uh, it's, it's cultural. That was going to be my final question, Bill. In the wake of your articles, uh, Nevada is hurrying to try to do something, hopefully something that will be effective. And I wanted to get your assessment uh, almost a year after. Uh, are we there? What is left to be done? Uh, one of uh, one of the alleged malfeasors again is a federal judge. Is structural reform going to do this for us uh, culturally? What needs to be done? Well, I, I, I'm not going to tell you what to do. <laughs> that's, that's the last thing a reporter wants to do. But I will tell you what's wrong. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't know. The, I, I can tell you this: that, that um, uh, in the debate between whether to elect or whether to appoint, it, it, that is less important really than the community demands a responsible and fair judiciary, whether it's an elected one or an appointed one. The judge that uh, that was uh, appointed to the to the federal bench um, first ran for election in, in the state, um, so he was an elected judge, and then he's an appointed judge. The fact is, even even the appointment was a was the result of a campaign to get appointed. Uh, and he, this same judge, used a, his campaign manager from the state job, from the state election, to make the connections with the politically powerful uh, middlemen to get appointed to get the uh, uh, to get the the White House to appoint him. So there's campaigning going on whether you're running for the for election with the public or you're running for appointment in the elite circles of the powerful and. Uh, in the end, it doesn't matter which of those systems you're using. If the public demands, if 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 if, the, if Las Vegas demanded that the judges appear to be fair, um, it doesn't matter which system you have. You'll have a more responsive judiciary. Well, with that, we'll give Bill Rumpel the final word and uh, say thank you for joining us. Please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>